today, I am really happy to welcome Kelly Corpening as my guest for this episode. Kelly Corpening is an artist, educator, and writer born in the U.S. with an MFA from Hunter College and BFA from the Cleveland Institute of Art and based in London. In 2016, she was shortlisted for both the Derwent and Jerwood Drawing Prizes and had a solo exhibition at Horatio Jr. in London. She is Program Director of Fine Art, Painting, Drawing, and Printmaking at the Camberwell College of Arts, University of the Art London. She is co-editor and contributor to the recent publication, A Companion to Contemporary Drawing, that was published by Wiley Blackwell late last year of 2020. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you very much. It's so nice to be here. And I have to say that Kelly and I knew each other since high school, which is more than we care to count yeah, <laughs> in a decade. Yeah. It's unusual. I think for both of us, we left our hometown and settled in different places. We're not people who've been that rooted in those experiences. So this is a really nice opportunity for me to have a conversation with someone who I have a long history with. Yeah, definitely. And I think what's interesting for us is that throughout our careers and, and lives, really, we've been able to come together, regroup, talk about what we're doing, what we're working on. And it's as if we've never stopped having a conversation, which is lovely to have. Yeah, absolutely. You don't come by friendships that easily. And I think especially after this experience, we've had more time to think and reflect upon our lives. And, and these things really stand out as being really valuable. That is, I think, one of the main silver linings in, in all of this. I mean, let's hear about your background and how you trained as an artist and what your education has been. The fact that I became an artist was certainly no um, certain path, just because that wasn't a path that anyone about my family had ever followed. I had a couple of good experiences, I think, in school and in my childhood. I think my father, who had in his education draftsmanship training. So when I showed an interest in drawing, he showed me how to draw in perspective. So I was kind of an unusual 10-year-old girl making perspectival drawings of houses and buildings and things. And at that stage, I think I probably thought I'd become an architect, which would have been perceived as a more sensible path to follow. But in the end, I think I was probably more interested in self-expression to the extent that architecture wouldn't have been a, a good path for me. What was your first exposure to fine art paintings and drawings? Because, you know, we both grew up in Ohio and it, it took a little bit of um, initiative on our part, just because of my family background of just seeking it out for myself. Yeah, I think uh, we're lucky in, in Cleveland, there's an excellent museum. So once you find your way there, there's a rich resource there to draw from. And I think, you know, credit to my parents, whenever I started to show an interest in art, we went down there and, and viewed the museum museum. And while I was still in high school, I enrolled in Saturday classes at the Cleveland Institute of Art, which was just near the museum. So I felt much more tapped into something bigger than, than the local context, that, that there was a, a relationship that that museum gave me to the rest of the world. So my interest in art was a kind of also a curiosity about what the history that all those objects in that museum uh, kind of opened up. So that was the main thing, I think, the way my parents uh, supported me uh, with that kind of interest and passion. And I had, you know, a couple of quirky teachers in school, high school, that I think recognized that 
I had some ability and supported me with that, which was, you know, I think we can't underestimate how a positive experience like that can really help encourage you to follow a direction and feel confident doing so. I don't know if you did art classes in high school. We had a very mercurial art teacher who never, ever reinforced anything with a positive remark, but she, you knew that you were in, you knew that you were in her good books if she gave you an extra piece of paper or, you know, (laughs) there was always a sort of very roundabout way of positively reinforcing a student. Well, it's funny you mentioned her because she was my entry into art history because she would show us those amazing slides of old master paintings and and it really did open a whole new doorway of of interest for me. Yeah, she she was pretty incredible. You know, her art history lectures were probably not an essential part of the curriculum or what she was expected to provide as the high school art teacher, but they were pretty substantial. I, I remember doing reports that were the result of real research in, into different aspects of art history. So I could see how that would have inspired you as well. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, in a suburb in the Midwest, it wasn't, I think maybe if you were in a bigger city, there would be uh, maybe a larger population of, of kids with those interests, but the, it was really small, the, the number of people who would have followed those, you know, an interest in art history or art. Now, your time at the Cleveland Institute of Art, what was that like? The BFA was five years and two years were spent. Now people will call that the core program or foundation program. It was two years spent doing everything from design to craft to art. And I felt like that was an irreplaceable exposure to a lot of different processes and techniques and things. And then the choosing your major, which I chose painting, um, there was also the capacity to have essentially like a minor subject. Again, a, a kind of influential teacher that I had, or professor, was the professor of anthropology, which I basically had a minor in anthropology by taking all her classes. And that was another, you know, I think following my curiosity and interest in things that that really underpinned I think uh, a lot of my interests that were weren't just specific to the history of art but more about understanding different cultural perspectives and different contexts over time. And how were you able to bring those two interests into your MFA program or was it related? I did. I, you know, going to Hunter, Hunter is more of a broad-based university. The MFA program is pretty autonomous, I suppose, within within Hunter, but there was the capacity to take other classes, which I did. I, I took anthropological linguistics, I remember, in the second year of my MFA. It was something that I was able to continue and kind of think about how we formed our, um, how the visual world was tied up or overlapped with how we understood things around us, the kind of thread that I took through to Hunter. What's interesting is we both went to graduate school in the mid-90s, and around that time was the big focus on identity politics and cross-cultural study, and I felt like there were so many other things happening. Did you feel that sense in your classes as well? I think I was pretty blown away 
by the differences between my undergraduate and experience in the MFA at Hunter because the theoretical content of the course was much more robust. I realized that I, I just had very little background for it to ground myself in where we were in that moment in the 1990s. But I, I think the big formative experience that between the two, that same anthropology professor from Cleveland invited me on a, an archaeological dig in, in South India. And that experience, which apart from having been to Canada and Mexico, was the, my first experience away from North America. And I was completely immersed in a rural village in, in Karnataka for six months. Then I moved to New York after that, and, and I had this gulf between the two experiences that I was trying to come to grips with that I suppose it was maybe unusual, but appropriate kind of preparation for those conversations because I had immersed myself within an environment where I was in the extreme minority and could contemplate a world for, um, you know, what I had been accustomed to being in the majority. Right. Mm -hmm. So the to put it really simply, that that just offered an experience of what that felt like, aside from the big differences in terms of first world and developing world that were also on my mind um, in that contrast between the two experiences. It seems like you feel comfortable moving across various disciplines and even going into non-artistic fields like anthropology. What do you think is the value of those kinds of exchanges? I think whatever you experience outside your comfort zone is something you bring back to that comfort zone. So it's that one would never be satisfied or, or have a sense of thinking that, you know, one knew everything they needed to know. The path of the artist now is taking so many different routes that it's harder to have a fixed definition for things when it's not just have you been taken on by a blue chip gallery, yes or no, as a, a kind of definition of success. But instead, you know, you see in a number of different national contexts, people working across different national contexts or within local communities or what have you, that there are many ways that work gets made and shown and shared. How do you think your role as educator evolved over time? Because I think, you know, you've taught for many years in different roles. Do you think your approach to the curriculum has changed? I didn't really start teaching that much until I was almost 30. And I mentioned that just because I had a lot of experiences in the art world and varied positions and an artist often does assisting in galleries or assisting artists and getting a sense of what those models of success really meant for the artist and for everyone else and who was finding it easier and who wasn't not, and it, not in a um, conspiratorial way but just really seeing the the power structures and kind of understanding them and then realizing that I had some wonderful teachers throughout my experience in education, but I don't really recall studio tutors in my undergraduate experience who were women. I did have a thesis advisor in, in grad school who was a woman, and that was just so eye-opening that I had, hadn't had realized that 
the model that I'd been presented with was one where I didn't see myself in it. So I think mm. the my role in education, by the time I finally started to teach, I realized that just by that experience, I was able to behave in a different way towards students to understand that you know, students from all kinds of backgrounds would be feeling very differently about the experience and that what, you know, the question always is, you know, what, what can we do to make everyone feel comfortable, to make everyone benefit from this amazing opportunity to come into contact with so many different people and realize that there's a lot to be learned from each other. I think what's going to happen is because of all these different technological advances and also progressive movements, I think art will look very different and has looked very different in the 21st century. Mm. I suppose there's another part of what I've brought to education and continue to explore, which is the whatever your personal position might be and whatever the prevailing politics that might kind of flavor whatever moment we're working in. I am such an advocate for the power of art, for those artistic decisions that give expression to whatever that person's position might be. That is the thing that I think I get really excited about when you see the individual finding the tools and the, the skills or the whatever the technique might be the approach might be to find the artistic expression. In the publication that was out late last year, A Companion to Contemporary Drawing, you write in your essay, Drawing from Life in the 21st Century Art School, drawing from life involves power dynamics. And you sort of state that from the get-go. What did you mean by that? I guess I thought about this in terms of, of life drawing being the center of the art school for a long time in the academy. Even in my own experience, life drawing was the core component of the early part of the education. And it was always taught or presented in this neutral way, as if it wasn't strange that an unclothed person was standing on a a platform and everyone surrounded them drawing. In that essay, I, I look at the writer John Berger and inherent contradictions between his love of drawing and his belief in drawing as a means of understanding and, and having empathy with the world around you. And at the same time, you know, he wrote Ways of Seeing, which really brought thinking about art in the 1970s in relation to the growing advertising industry and all of the kind of power dynamics that have kind of subtly adopted that have existed in, in, in art for a long time. But he, you know, he was pointing out how they have been replicated in advertising. Those two positions, I suppose, that who's doing the looking and who's being looked at was something that needed some examining. And then kind of going out beyond that, I was thinking about now in a world that chapter was written before the pandemic. So it's not even as extreme as it is now in terms of how connected we are via online media. But nonetheless, that the way we see the world is, is so mediated now that this idea of observational drawing or drawing from life has to be expanded to include those means by which we see things and witness things in the world. So they don't have to be firsthand for us to be drawing from the world and drawing from those things that are mediated are a means of critiquing that 
mediation as well. So making ourselves aware of what the mass shared image is doing and what it means to consume it and their power dynamics in that as well. Making drawings from those dynamics, it has a certain power and potency, I think, in relation to the photograph or the filmed image. Like what you said, when you are flooded with imagery from all sides and various platforms and devices, everything feels negotiated and there's ways to work through that. In the same essay, you've referenced Joseph Albers. You know, he was an influential figure in Bauhaus and then he moved to the U.S. and began the Black Mountain College of Art uh, in North Carolina. And you mentioned his line, the ability to see came from the ability to draw. Could you expand on that? Because I thought that was such a pithy way of saying something that is kind of elemental. I responded to that too, because a lot of people will know Joseph Albers as an abstract artist and someone who was a great proponent of color theory and design, not necessarily with drawing that you would do to observe the world. And it's, for me, this, it relates to what we were discussing just before and what seems to be, like you say, a kind of essential component of how you would form a critical position in the world, that you have to be able to understand what it is that you're seeing. So the drawing enables you to slow down and really look at the detail of something. And in that slowing down, think about what it is that you're seeing. I think that dynamic, that activity, that mode of engaging with the world becomes more and more valuable as everything else becomes more immediate and more defined by a short attention span. I think everyone feels very confident that they know what painting looks like, what drawing looks like, what sculpture looks like. And I've been really grappling with this idea of medium specificity, where Greenberg is the one who really try to put, you know, in neat boxes, those categories. Do you agree with him? Do you feel like those are outmoded ideas? Is there a need to categorize those practices as such? I would actually say now you can talk about painting and it's not medium specific. I think you could talk about drawing and it's not medium specific because of the way practices have expanded. So I don't think it does apply anymore, but in a way it still sits there, Greenberg's theories, as something that we rub up against. As someone who's taught drawing specifically a lot, I always am reminding people that you can make drawings with code. So all those expectations and the directness and that archaic activity of drawing isn't necessarily so. And it's and it's certainly not medium specific when you're typing code into a keyboard to generate a drawing. I think it's kind of gone in another direction where the maybe the word is still useful as a, a framework, but it's not dependent on medium. What is that framework? Is it a sense of intimacy? Is it more of a direct line with your body? Is it its portability? Because, you know, from a person who doesn't practice art, and I come from a side of, you know, trained as an art historian, you want to go with the impulse of putting things into categories, just to sort of help you make the analysis. But I think as a practitioner, and you're thinking very, you know, differently. Maybe an example I would give would be, if I carry on talking about drawings made with code, is that the directness is relinquished by the artist. To create the drawing requires this rather distant, remote typing to generate an experience of drawing that 
is direct when it comes to the audience. So the audience would recognize it as drawing and the experience of the drawing would feel direct because there are ways to make coded drawings responsive to audience movement or activity or or what have you. So, you know, that example just shows that there are certain characteristics maybe of line or direct experience that just shift a little bit in terms of Who's experiences it kind of qualities of drawing? That's interesting that you mentioned how the audience, the perception of that work sort of feeds into the definition of the whole process. Could you go into detail how the process of drawing gets sort of manifested in your in your work? I like contradictions and how they they create kind of a dialogue within a drawing. The most recent work I've been making since last March in the lockdown, the first lockdown that we had, I've been looking at markings in the road that would you know, normally be guiding us walk this way or, or take care at the edge of the curb and things like that. You know, in empty streets, they just struck me as poignant and funny and tragic all at the same time. The technique that I developed there came out of, I think, maybe two experiences in my my professional life where one was, I mentioned already, having worked as an archaeological illustrator, so extreme up-close detail drawing of every last texture as if there was some secret by recording this thing that we would somehow uncover. And then the surface of the road is is much more an impression of a texture that technically, I feel the background there is the couple of summers I worked doing set painting in, when I still lived in New York, where these massive floors in the, in the West Hell's Kitchen area of Manhattan were, are given over to these flats that these massive amounts of texture and paint are thrown in all directions. And, and they're amazing because they look so expressive up close, but from a distance to the audience, they just look like stone or brick or what have you. Those two registers within the drawing mean you're, you never quite settle on one perspective or one vantage point. You have this up close study and then you want to pull away and see how the texture consolidates as a surface and, and that unsettling relationship is a stand-in for the unsettling conditions that we're all experiencing. When you look at your drawings or works, yeah. Where am I looking from a top down or are you looking at something across or cl very close to you? So I understand that sense of destabilization. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, also, because I'm taking something that's been found in the world on a horizontal and putting it on the vertical, it is another kind of destabilization of, you know, that experience. Now, these new works have text on them. Is that a recent development? I'm interested in language and, and the kind of relationship between drawing and writing as a human. You're going back to childhood, right? As soon as a child starts making marks, the, the difference between picture and word is often hard to discern for quite a long time. And it's such a shame when that ends because it's a way of understanding something really interesting about the human brain that we then learn ourselves out of, we separate those things. But I have to say, I mean, that that idea is something that was alive much more in work I, I made maybe 10 years ago. This work is really deliberately legible as words. Again, I think maybe the method of drawing the words themselves, which are observations of thick, thick layered paint on the road surface, there's a kind of objectness to the to the text 
So it's a, the M is something you could go up and touch and feel, and, and it's a tangible reality and not just a semantic reference. There's some other works where you've put an outline of figures. There's incredible tension between these figures and they're in certain poses. And then the surface on them is incredibly, it's almost like a caustic kind of feeling that you get from looking at that surface. And I just wonder, how did you create that? <laughs> um, are you talking about like the walking man, the simple the stick man? The walking figures, yeah, yeah. yes. Well, those were road markings too, which really struck me as amazingly expressive. I like the idea that somewhere there was a person assigned that job to draw a stick figure. And, and there were many of them. And each one was slightly different. And each one seemed to be a little bit stronger on their feet or they had a certain kind of character, but lots of texture. So that dynamic that I talked about between what looked like set painting and really precise recording was that the noise of texture in one would be in competition with the noise of texture in the other. It felt like this poor solitary figure was under threat somehow. But the, the drawing itself is just pencil drawing, just really carefully observed. Yeah, to a ridiculous extent, I think that kind of drawing has felt especially pertinent to me in this moment because so much of my time is spent looking at screens and the concentration it takes to make a drawing like that is a wavering one and I feel like I'm holding my brain together somehow by not looking at the whole but just looking at that one little indentation of the paint and how can I just concentrate don't look anywhere else just look at that one thing and and try and make sure it's accurately recorded. When you said you were holding your gaze, my brain almost thought holding your breath and maybe they're not so dissimilar. No, I know. I, I think uh, there is that too. And, and for some reason, I, I listen to lots of political podcasts while I'm doing them. So it's a strange convergence of trying to ground myself, but at the same time, just, you know, being furious at the same time. I can't quite describe it. I, I think maybe one day I'll write an essay about this space that I create in those moments, which maybe is kind of interesting. I don't know, but it's so intense. And I think what it is, this is how I think I would describe it, is listening to political podcasts about obviously big and universally known current events and feeling so desperately powerless. The concentration on that one thing I know I can have a measurable accomplishment with is something that I can hold on to and feel like in that moment it's important. And then I step away and say, that's ridiculous. That took me two hours, you know. <laughs> But it, it is somehow just doing something and observing this. And, and I suppose that creating that drawing of the stick figure walking, it is an expression of that feeling of just about still standing and, and holding it together and, and keeping one's sanity and, and some kind of sense of perspective. Hearing about the process behind those works makes me understand that time concentration does get somehow folded into the marking because when you look at 
the work, there's incredible amounts of detail and attention that holds. And I've noticed also the works that you have reinforced onto steel and how that came about. Because talk about contradictions where you're seeing something almost delicate or hand done, but then you couple it with an industrialized material. Exactly. I'm glad you recognize that because that's definitely the dynamic that I was interested in of thrusting this piece of steel into social space that's covered in a drawing that's taken so much time. So it's basically holding something precious over the balcony kind of thing. You know, it's just saying I am positioning this vulnerable object out in the world that has meaning as a dynamic of viewing. How did that format come about? The origins of it, I can say, are thanks to Giotto. There's this amazing, I don't know if you know it, but in the the St. Francis fresco cycle, there is one of the images is of the back of a cross that's kind of leaning towards what we can see on the other side of the wall is the religious site, I don't know, the church, what have you. And I think Giotto was playing around with, you know, this is proto-Renaissance perspectival space and concepts of inside and outside and how to successfully delineate those things. The actual handling of that cross, it's just ridiculous in a way, because you see in another fresco that the other side of that cross is beautifully painted and very ornate and the side you're supposed to see. Why he chose to show the side you're not supposed to see is almost feels blasphemous in a way, that it's some kind of Hollywood set or an artifice of meaning there. Scholars don't really think that that was his meaning, but me looking at it today, that's what I brought to that. That kind of kicked off a whole series of images where I was looking at the backs of paintings and the provenance and the conservation that the backs of paintings reveal, and this whole history of the preservation of that object, and generations deciding, yep, let's keep it. And of all the other objects that have been lost to time, you know, here is this thing, and you can see this kind of fingerprint or of, of that history on the back. So I'd made this very large, almost a six foot high drawing of something like the back of that cross mixed with the back of an old master painting. I hung the drawing facing the wall and cut out the shape for it to to fall through. And it looked amazing when I first did it. I didn't completely cut the object out. It just flopped forward in a beautiful curve. But with a piece of paper that large, it didn't take long. The paper started to tear. It just wouldn't have lasted without support. So it was at that moment that I started to mount the paper onto this thin gauge steel, this industrially cut out and rolled thin gauge steel. So that appearance of the paper, it's not as thin as paper, but it's pretty thin. It still gives off this impression of a piece of paper defying gravity or being poised at a moment of either falling apart or peeling away. It gives you a sense of where that came from as a gesture. When you mentioned the backs of old master paintings, you know, I worked in an auction house for a long time and you do understand the whole history of of certain works when you study the labels and the backs of things. One time I was at an appraisal and I was looking at the back of a Franz Klein painting and one label was the collection of so-and-so and he happened to be my college professor. 
what? teaching Renaissance art. <laughs> so I thought, wow, he had good yeah. taste. Well, I don't know why he ever let that go. Um, <laughs> One degree of separation somehow. It know. really is. Definitely yeah. the art world. And he had yeah. good taste. The idea of in and out of delicacy of strength. Um, I was just sort of reading the various experiences and projects you've worked on. You had an art residency mm -hmm. in Ghent. Was that the resulting show, the in and outside yeah. and writing? Yeah. That was great. There were four of us, two of us living here in the UK and two from Belgium. And we embarked on it as four practitioners who have an interest in this relationship between drawing and writing, whether that is because drawn forms look like letter shapes or because people were using language specifically in their work. We got a little bit of funding for it based on this premise that we wouldn't predetermine the outcome of our working together, but we would create the conditions where we would work side by side to see what kind of influence we might have on each other and how our ideas might influence or overlap or form new meaning, I suppose. Part of the inspiration for applying to do something like that is because most grant applications ask you to identify what you want to what the outcome is in a really clearly defined sense. We knew we wanted to have a big exhibition at the end. We knew we wanted to make a publication, but we didn't want to determine how that would work. The project went over the course of almost two years. That was an opportunity for me in that work. What probably emerged because we were traveling to different locations to make work was this idea of a flat pack practice. So lots of cutout shapes and objects that could then be assembled and grow into much larger scale, you know, often just leaning up against the floor or going along the ledge so that the different forms would have to be read from left to right or right to left, depending on how you entered the space. That was the bit that I I was interested in was this difference between reading and looking and how much I could play with those different registers of what we do is in reading text and looking at art. The notion of legibility is something that I am really grappling with. For something to be legible, it has to be in the practice of writing. Now, could you apply the same rules of legibility? Is it a, a cultural, you know, learned practice? Is it innate? Is it instinctual? By using these curves over and over again, is that writing? I don't know if you know this, but there's something called acemic writing where it's virtue of the hand, right? But it yeah. doesn't have to be legible to yeah. be considered writing, um, which yeah. I found fascinating. Henri Michaud's work is a good example of that sort of looks like calligraphy of, you know, these little ink shapes. I think cartoons are a really good indication of legibility. We seem to universally understand a kind of fast line, a, a conflict or something, you know, jagged lines. I think there are some inherent qualities in, in line that we do understand. It would be interesting. I mean, that, that takes us into kind of anthropological realms in terms of understanding how people who have not been privy to mass-produced cartoons and, and so on that would they see the same things but we're, um, most of us have have seen cartoons and comics and caricatures to understand them it's hard to know you know whether they are there you know the nature nurture question whether they're there from the start but there's some pretty good indications i mean one thing that i referred to when we were doing that project was 
Do you know the Lawrence Stern novel, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy? It's not an easy book to read, but what made it so revolutionary is that there's an entirely black page in it. And there's, is, there's a page with just a squiggly line on it. And it's, you know, in the context of the story, so it's an 18th century novel. The man picks up his walking stick and, and, and makes this flourish and instead of saying that he's done that there's this squiggly line in the text which i think is a, a nice indication prior to the 20th century mass-produced cartoon culture that help us understand that gesture i i realized that when you were talking about the exhibition that you have this an awareness of architecture and of space is that a big factor in when you're creating the work and thinking about how is this going to be positioned in a specific space definitely i i think i'm frustrated by the clasped hands behind the back and that fixed position that people especially if you're making drawings that i for a long time have been trying to frustrate that tendency i guess and and think about a drawing is something that is more dynamic than that. I guess I'm looking at an active viewing experience that the drawing might be a stand-in, not just a representation of, but the, the way the drawing makes you move around to, to appreciate different aspects of it has a meaning to it that is spatial and, and or maybe more specifically out of lived experience, which I think is embodied experiences is spatial it's takes place over time with lots of other things going on in your mind as you're walking through life those different registers dictate a different way of viewing ideally probably the most expeditious way for someone to understand art without having a background in art or art history to have that experiential experience and perhaps that's why they're becoming more mainstream sought after is you want to physically experience works of art now i think it's also the product of maybe more sedentary existence where the world comes to you via your device that the experience of art and when you have to move, you are a part of the work while you're looking at it. The experience is something that person would value or find intriguing. I think the need to look at art yeah. will never go away. And if anything, probably yeah. a pent up demand for it. I've, um, I've certainly found that actually. This is the, something... you know, in the moments we've had to, when I can go and see shows, I've, I've been practically sniffing paintings and you know, just wanting to have, because I think it's about having a multi-sensory experience. It's not just about the eyes. I did this research on Black Mountain College and there was one student who went there in the late 40s and she talked about Joseph Albers and what a great teacher he was. And this is like a, you know, like an oral history of that school. I just want to read out one quote because it was pretty fantastic. From Albers, I learned to see everything around me more intensely. But then she also goes to mention this really funny anecdote where he would get into these friendly arguments with Robert Rauschenberg and how, you know, he thought Rauschenberg was too wild. One time he brought in something and it actually made Albert's really happy. And he said, Bob, how did you do it? And Bob said, 
I held it as tight as I could, and then I wiggled it a little bit. <laughs> I thought that was such a great encapsulation of what drawing meant. When we had Helen Molesworth came and gave a talk not long after Donald Trump became president, she was asked at the end of her talk, so the talk was about the Black Mountain College exhibition that she had curated. She was asked at the end by a student, if you could give Donald Trump any lesson of the Black Mountain College, what would you give him? She thought about it for a little bit and then she said, I think a color theory lecture. And everybody laughed and she says, no, 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 not like what you think, not about color in terms of race, but in terms of just being able to see that an orange on top of green can look different from that green on top of the orange that you would you know recognize a complexity in the world that things weren't as simple as as you might think i thought it was a lovely answer and it's kind of relates to some of the things we've talked about in this uh, discussion i think it's an empathy or an appreciation for nuance and and difference and perception you know we have many lifetimes in one life in a way <laughs> where you you sort of go and like you mentioned we both left we pursue different things we come back we leave again we come back so there are different definitely yeah. arcs to our yeah. narratives yeah. uh for given that it's the beginning of the lunar new year what are your plans hopes because if we're in this present condition it's really fun and interesting to plan ahead as much as you can if not only in your imagination that's such a curveball and i have to say before you answer Kelly was a star <laughs> softball champion in our high school. I mean, she was a killer athlete. And no one would know this except for people who went to our oh, high school. Oh, that's really funny you mentioned that. Um, yeah, hence the curveball reference. Yeah, I know a curveball when I see it. It's so funny. I've, I've been training myself not to worry too much about next steps because you could go crazy with the things that haven't been able to happen. But... I'm still making work and it's really funny that I've I've been pretty productive in this time without a single prospect or plan in place to show the work. That's my simple goal would be to, I would really like to see this work assembled, exhibited together to see how others thought of it as an expression of this moment. And I think that would bring me a lot of satisfaction, I think. I would like to echo that sentiment as well, to see <laughs> your work in person. Yes, to bring it down to simplest terms, do the work that you love, the work that you put value in, and then you want to share that work. I think those are the biggest lessons and probably the hardest lessons that I had to learn for yeah, myself. Absolutely. I think right now we're, we're thinking about the connections we can maintain and create in this moment. You know, and I think we're both at, at points of our careers or lives where we feel comfortable doing that. I think perhaps if we were younger or less immature or less experienced, you wouldn't have that kind of feelings of yeah. of wanting to share in yeah, a way yeah. or, or knowing what to share. It's maybe one of the nicest things about being middle-aged. <laughs> There's not a lot, but this is one of them. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, you know, I, I had too. such a great time really just talking with you, but 
also doing the research and the background and reading. I mean, the essay was fantastic. Oh, I think everyone、you. should pick up that book. I have to say, this is the first textbook, right, on contemporary drawing. That would be an incredible resource to all university well, students and people who yeah, will find it. I, I'm just so, so it's so lovely <laughs> to talk to you, and it's incredibly flattering to feel like that arc of our experience together going back to. Whenever it was, when we were probably both about thirteen or fourteen years old, to just feel like we're not done yet. I look forward to being able to travel, and we will sit across the table from each other, and and I'll interview you next time. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Kelly.